0: All right. Good morning. Welcome to another week of our being scattered together. Thanks again so much for gathering in this way today. I pray it's a blessing and an encouragement to you wherever you're gathered uh, this morning. Uh, Let's leap into this. We're going to do what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to our passage today from Matthew's Gospel, continuing in this series uh, through the Gospel today, beginning Matthew 5 and verse 21, if you want to get there with me, and then I'll read this for us. Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says this, "'You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment.' Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's God's word. Let me pray for us quickly and then let's uh, dive into this. Spirit of God, we come to you this morning coming to your word, coming as those who want to place ourselves underneath your word, to be taught and instructed and grown by it. So I pray you to do that, Lord. Accomplish the the purpose that you have in us, in each one of us for this word today. Loom in your word, God. Help us to see what it is you're calling us to and then help us to be obedient, to to walk into what you show us uh, with, with faith and trust that this is for our good. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. So says at least uh, the warning, or the, the warning that is often spoken by Dr. Banner, Dr. Bruce Banner, you know, uh, the, the renowned physicist in the Marvel comics, who also, as a result of some failed experiments with gamma radiation, also happens to transform into a massive green, raging, smashing machine, A.K.A. the Hulk, uh, whenever he becomes angered. So it's yeah, it's not a idle sort of empty threat that he's giving You wouldn't like me when I'm angry, like uh, you, you, you really wouldn't. Now, yes, those of you who are fans of the MCU will already know that the Hulk, he goes through something of an emotional transformation over the course of his life as well, particularly upon joining the Avengers as he learns to bring his anger under control, but yeah, without boring uh, at least half of you with what I see as just the literary genius of, of men like uh, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, whose comic characters, like the, the gods of Greco Roman mythology, are these fascinating explorations of what human traits and emotions might look like when exaggerated to superhuman proportions. The simple fact remains that a comic book character uh, like the Incredible Hulk, th- this comic book character in particular, what that shows us at least is the grave seriousness as well as the incredibly destructive power of something like anger. And, and I think that, that that's, that's one of those realities, like, like the gravely serious, ang- anger is gravely serious, has this destructive power. That's something that, it's a reality that we know but but we don't really know, you know, or, or 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 just that we forget again and again until the next time. Like Dr. Banner, we wake up standing in the wreckage of our angry words or our actions or, or both, wondering how it is we could have ever done something so hurtful and destructive. But as we come to our passage today from Matthew's Gospel, it seems that anger is something that Jesus wants to address in his. Kingdom citizens as well. If you, if you look again at our passage there, actually equating the destructive effects of anger with murder. So, now, now we'll see as we dig into this that, that, that Jesus has a very specific kind of anger in mind. Okay? He's not just referring to all anger in general, a very specific kind. But, but something I think is just so great, so, so helpful about the way Jesus tackles this subject of, of anger in our lives is that he deals with it in this really holistic, really, really kind of both sides of the coin kind of way, dealing both with the anger we feel when we've been wronged by others, as well as the anger we cause when it's others who have been wronged by us. He deals with, with both of those, and so actually that's how I want to divide up our time in this passage, in that same holistic, both sides of the coin kind of way, looking at the danger of anger in us, and then the urgency of anger in others. Hey, just those two things today, the danger of anger in us and the urgency of anger in others. Okay, so, so if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is you're using this morning, would you open it again with me to this passage, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21? Follow along with me as we look at the way that Jesus addresses a subject that, that has touched and, and will undoubtedly continue to touch all of our lives, namely the problem of anger and its destructive power. That, that Jesus actually, as we see here, came to bring fulfillment. He, he, he came to bring freedom from for all who put their trust in His law-fulfilling work on our behalf. Okay, so let's take a look, first of all, at the danger of anger in us. The danger of anger in us. So, as I said a moment ago, Jesus has this very specific kind of anger in mind when he warns his kingdom citizens about the destructive power of anger. Again, this is not for a moment. Jesus saying, hey, listen, if you want to be a citizen in my kingdom, you can no longer be angry anymore. Nobody's allowed to be angry in my kingdom. This is just a happy king. No, that's not not it at all. But before we define the kind of anger that Jesus has in mind, I think it's really important that we just quickly review just a couple things from what we looked at last week. Uh, As Jesus says, Uh, What he says in verses 17 through 20, the passage we looked at last week, has relevance actually now for everything else Jesus says in chapter 5, including uh, what we have in our passage today. So... Particularly if you weren't with us last week, Jesus again has concluded this opening section of his Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and now he's moving into this new section, beginning at verse 17, spanning through the chapter 5, and the whole focus, again, of this new section of teaching is all about how citizens in Jesus' kingdom are to relate to the law of Moses, as well as to the teaching of the Old Testament in general, now that they've entered into an eternal, committed relationship with him. We talked about a number of important things from that passage last week, but as it relates to now these six specific examples that Jesus gives from the law and the prophets uh, of what that relationship looks like, I think the most important thing to keep in mind over these next weeks as we look at each of those examples is what Jesus says in verse 17. Just quickly look with me there again. Remember, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them, okay? so which is important for, for two reasons. First of all, because it helps us to understand that now, each time Jesus references one of these examples from the Law and the Prophets and says, you have heard it was said to the people of old, but, but I say to you, we can know that in no way does that mean Jesus is dismissing, disregarding, trying to like, wipe the hard drive clean of any of these Old Testament Scriptures, he, but rather he's trying to bring them to their intended fulfillment because right? he's, not, he's not trying to abolish them, but fulfill them. But secondly, what it also it's, it's important to remember this because although, yes, Jesus is absolutely revealing an infinitely more impossible demands of the law in his teaching here, we've got to remember, having already fulfilled the law and the prophets on our behalf, what we can know that our striving to be obedient to God is still now in no way our trying to earn our acceptance with him, but on the basis of and in the celebration of the fact that in Jesus we already are fully accepted by God. So that's why that's so important to hold in our minds as we come to these different parts of the law and the prophets that Jesus is looking at. But as we come now to this first example from the Mosaic law that we see at the beginning of our passage, verse 21, we we see a combination, actually, both of the law itself. You shall not murder was the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments given in Exodus 20. So it's a combination of the law itself as well as the teachings surrounding that commandment, which describe the judgment for breaking that commandment, which in this case, the case of murder, was capital punishment, what was being put to death. And and I know that there's this kind of uh, strained, lots of different opinions and views about something like capital punishment today in our modern Western society. But what's important to remember is that in this historical And cultural context requiring a life for taking a life what was in no way uh, meaning or or describing uh, them having a low kind of expendable view of life just kind of like well whatever just get rid of them no it was actually rather it was an expression of just how valuable they saw and understood human beings made in the image of likeness of God to be that that's what capital punishment for them was in the case of murder it was an expression of just how valuable they saw human life to be but this is a teaching from the law, like, yeah, don't murder people, or, or you'll be subject to judgment. That, that's a teaching from the law that would have been as, as unsurprising, as commonly understood to, to Jesus' audience there that he's preaching to then, uh, as it is for us today. Like, It's no different today. We, we know, like, don't murder people, you're going to experience some kind of judgment for that, even if we have yeah different opinions about what that judgment should be for taking another person's life. But what absolutely is surprising, wow, like, like what was not commonly understood by anyone was what Jesus goes on to say in verse 22. So, so look with me there now. Okay, for after reiterating what was commonly understood in the law of Moses, Jesus continues there in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He's using the exact same word. Whoever insults says raka to his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Whoa. Wow, okay, so, so all of a sudden, like the outrage and the confusion that, that Jesus' audience would have experienced as he said this spans 2,000 years of church history to this moment here, and we experience the exact same outrage and confusion ourselves at hearing that. Uh, Like our our inner defense attorney just like jumps out of his seat just shouting, Objection, Your Honor! No! How on earth can can Jesus say this? How how can we be expected to equate being angry with someone, just insulting them with murder? How how can we even balance those things in the scale? How can Jesus even suggest that those two things are worthy of equal judgment before God? (laughs) I'm sure it was the exact same reaction in Jesus' day when he said this. But now, now, now this is where understanding what Jesus means by anger is so so important. For for think about it, even on a surface level, we, we see, read through the Bible, you see God getting angry all the time. Uh, in the New Testament, we see Jesus and, and the apostles in different places calling people foolish. Like, like they're doing these things that Jesus says are liable to judgment. So, so what's going on? Like well, there, there's got to be more to the story, right? And the deeper meaning comes, actually, when we understand both what the intent behind those terms, raka and and foolish were, as well as when we come to learn the specific terms Jesus is using for anger in this passage. All of a sudden, it's going to make, I hope, it makes way more sense. So very quickly, first of all, raka. This is a word, apparently, an Aramaic word that's very difficult to translate, which basically just means Empty. So, so it's basically mean like you're saying to someone, you empty, you, you, you nothing. And then fool or moros, from, from which we get the English word moron, is degrading someone's intelligence, uh, uh, the, degrading their mental equality with yourself, which, which as Tim Keller says in his work on this passage, to, to call someone you nothing it is not so much an insult as it is an attitude. And he says this, it's an attitude of being dismissive. It's an attitude of contempt, disdain, condescension, and belittling. belittling. As, that is this, is, this isn't just a way of speaking, but a way of feeling about another person that negates their entire value as a human being made in the image and likeness of God. So hopefully you're already beginning to see the, the connection. But then anger. Anger, as Jesus is using the word here, is not the Greek word thymos thymos was anger in the greek but that described a kind of anger uh, that was like the burning of straw it was equated that way something that like flares up very quickly but then dies out very quickly as well so not thymos but he was using the word orgē which also means anger but in this case it's anger that is long-lived anger uh, it, it is remaining carried smoldering anger that he's describing anger that is cherished and nursed in order to be kept burning that's the kind of anger Jesus is describing here. where We just hold on with everything we've got to make sure that that person always knows just how much they've hurt us, and, and we need to make sure that they, that they are always punished for these things. We just cling to it. That's the kind of anger that Jesus is describing here. Okay, so now, those two things, John, John Stott brings these things all together and concludes this. Quote, anger and insults are ugly symptoms of the desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. Someone that our thoughts, looks, and words all indicate that as we sometimes dare to say, we wish we're dead. Such an evil wish, according to Jesus, is a breach of the sixth commandment and renders the guilty person liable to the very penalties to which the murderer exposes himself, not literally in a human court, for what court could charge a man with anger, but before the bar of God. End quote. So, Okay, do you, do you see it now? Do, do, do you see what Jesus is, is getting at now when he says this? Because think about it. Anger against things like sin, I- injustice, uh, abuse, all these kinds of things, that kind of anger is good and right. That, that reflects the heart of God when we're angry at those things, and we should feel anger at them. In fact, to, to not be angry at those things would probably indicate, indicate like a larger problem. But, but smoldering anger, cherished anger, that we nurse and feed in order to keep alive is—is is this destructive force in our hearts that Jesus says leads us to feel and act towards others in ways that makes us just as liable to judgment as if we had murdered them? Which I know, like, hear me, listen, I'm, I'm with you. It still sounds like an exaggeration to our ears when we hear that. It still sounds like hyperbole, and yet, when you remember what what what. We saw last week in Jesus' criticism of the scribes and the Pharisees. True righteousness, according to Jesus, is not just doing righteous actions and not doing unrighteous actions, but why it is we do those things. Like, like, like what's going on at a heart level? That's where true righteousness lives. And so the point is: like, if I don't physically murder someone, but still feel and act towards them as though I wished they were dead, Jesus says, you have not kept this law not to murder. In, in, in God's eyes, it's, it's the same thing. And this is something, again, I, I think we all know, but we don't really know. Or, or that we just continue to forget all the time about the destructive power, like how destructive the power of anger is in our lives. Or maybe, you know what? Maybe what it actually is is that we just don't want to know. We don't like this. We take offense to what Jesus says here because we know it, what he's saying is right and we don't like to have it exposed. We, we want to minimize our anger, just be like, okay, no, 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 anger's not good. We shouldn't be angry. And we want to just minimize it and, and ignore the fact that we know just how powerfully destructive anger like this that Jesus is describing is in our lives. Because again, there's all kinds of good and right reasons to be angry. That's not the point Jesus is making, but this cherished anger this smoldering, fed anger that we try to hold onto and keep alive. We know the destructive power of that. We know in, in, in every way it's, it's wrong and destructive and unhealthy for us. And maybe we just don't like it being pointed out. Uh, um, author and researcher Brene Brown describes this kind of anger that Jesus is speaking out about here in our passage, she, she describes this kind of anger as being like a catalyst, but a catalyst in the sense of something that, that produces and precipitates change in somebody. Noting this, holding on to anger, internalizing anger will make you exhausted and sick. It will take away our joy and our spirit. So, so the change here is that cherished anger, first of all, is self-destructive. The change is that it's a catalyst for self-destruction, but then she goes on, but then externalizing anger will make us less effective in our attempts to create change or to forge connection, which is exactly, isn't that exactly what we, we see in, in the ways that, that our attempts to, to nurse grudges, cherish anger towards others, destroys relationships, leads us to treat others in destructive, dehumanizing ways that denies their very personhood as people made in the image and likeness of God. Either one of these ways, they, there is this catalyst for, for change with this kind of cherished anger, but it's a catalyst for destructive change. The point is, regardless of, of whether it's internalized or externalized, cherished anger, this orge anger that, that in James 1.20, same, exact same word, tells us, uh, uh, know that the anger of man, the orge of man, does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Whether it's internalized or externalized, cherished anger, remains this powerfully destructive force in our lives that that Jesus says he wants his kingdom citizens to be free from. He came to bring us freedom from that. But what's incredibly interesting to note, now when we come to verse 23, look with me there now, where we think Jesus is going to go on now to describe the implications of everything that he's just been teaching us about the destructive power of cherished anger in our hearts. No, he describes instead the urgency of dealing not with our own anger towards others, but with the anger of others towards us. Hmm. So remember, I told you, it's this whole holistic, both sides of the coin here. So, So the last thing I want to look at together with you from our passage this morning it's what Jesus teaches us about the urgency of anger in others. The urgency of anger in others. So, so let's look again quickly at what Jesus says about dealing with the anger of others towards us. And then we'll just talk about it for a minute. Look again at verse 23. Jesus says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember, your brother has something against you. Okay, against so us—not you angry at someone. Your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Verse twenty-five. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to courts, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last. Penny. Okay, so we've got these two scenarios here. First takes place within a church kind of family of God context. Second takes place in, in a broader context where a, a plaintiff or an opponent is, is taking you to court to settle an outstanding debt. Remarkably, notes D.A. Carson, neither illustration deals with your anger but with your offense that has prompted the brother's or the adversary's rancor, I, I, guess, I guess against you. But, but, but in both circumstances, what is plain is Jesus' expectation that citizens of his kingdom will act urgently in order to deal with that offense that you've caused against someone else. Right? This is not, he's, he's saying you, we're not to wait for a time that's most convenient for you. Um, or even as we see in that first example with the worshiping and leaving your offering, even, even waiting for a time that's logistically convenient for you. In all these things, Jesus is calling for urgency, saying, don't wait to complete your act of worship first. Don't don't wait to see how things turn out before a judge first. Leave your gift at the altar. I don't even actually want, think about this, Jesus is saying, I don't want your worship, actually, before, until you deal with this reconciliation first, to go and make things right with your brother who who you've wronged. Come to terms with your accuser before you even get to the courthouse, says Jesus. With, with urgency, we are to deal with the offense and the anger that we have caused in others. Why? Well, as D.A. Carson goes on to say, quote, the connection with verses 21 and 22 and, and what Jesus says in verses 23 to 26 is very powerful. We are more likely to remember when we have done some, when we have something against others than when we have done something to offend others. Oh, isn't that so true? And if we are truly concerned about our anger and hate, we should be no less concerned When we have engendered them in others. And so what Jesus is saying here is that we are to be as urgent about dealing with the anger that we have caused in others as we are about dealing with the cherished anger at a heart level in our own lives. We're to be equally concerned and and give importance and and take action on both of those things equally. Now, important thing to, to note here is that Jesus, you notice he's speaking about a known offense, that you have caused against another person, right? This isn't a call for Jesus' kingdom citizens to be omniscient, that you would just be able to know any time you've ever offended anyone, uh, whether they've told you or not. No, this is a known offense, right? You, you know that your brother has something against you. you. You know that you have an unpaid debt before this person who's taking you to court. But something else that I think is important to note, if, if, as, you, if, as you read through that second section of the passage, is that notice in, in neither scenario... Does Jesus tell us how those urgent efforts to address anger that we've caused in others works out? Do you notice that? Like there, there, he doesn't tell us what happens when you go and, and try to reconcile with your brother. He doesn't tell us what happens when you try to settle outside of court. You notice that? In, there, there, there's a few possible reasons as to why that is, but I think in, in my mind what, what's the most obvious and, and important is that what, what's most important to God is, is your efforts to, to, to address the anger you caused in others. It's not that w- whether or not you're able to, to go and bring about reconciliation. It's not whether or not you're able to settle outside of court with your accuser before you get there. Th- that's, that's not what's most important to God, that you could accomplish those results. What's important to God, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, is that we make every effort, as far as it depends on you, to live at peace with all. That's what he's saying is most important here. It actually restricts our worship. It restricts our relationships if we don't address that urgently. Because in so doing, in in, in addressing these things, where we've caused offense and anger in others. Addressing them urgently, again, as D.A. Carson mentioned a moment ago, it shows that we're taking anger and hate as seriously as, as we want it to be taken seriously in us. So it's not just about what serves us best. We're taking it seriously in the lives of others as well, particularly where we're the ones who've caused it. And so I think, I think the only question here to consider, if, you're, if you see yourself as a follower of Jesus, a, a citizen is king, the question we need to really consider as we think of our own lives this morning is, Okay, are you? Are you doing this? Are, are you making every effort, as far as it depends on you, to deal not just with the destructive power of, uh, of, of anger in your own life, but with the anger that you have caused in the lives of others. Are you dealing with that urgently and, and presently, not, not just putting it off and waiting? Again, the point is not that you're able to just bring about reconciliation by sheer force of will, just like, you know, you need to reconcile with me. Uh, again, re- reconciliation is something that we know takes effort on both sides in order to be accomplished. And that can't always happen. In fact, sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes we're not able to bring about peace although we've made every effort ourselves but uh, honestly I just I think Carson is right here when 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 he he says that, that that we don't give nearly the amount of attention and focus to anger and offense that we've caused in others that we give when others have caused anger and offense in us we just don't give we don't nearly balance those things the same way people who have offended us way more important than if we've done something to someone else to cause anger in them when, when we're the ones who've caused offense, when we're the ones who've caused anger, we, we'll either seek to spiritualize away our responsibility to seek reconciliation with another brother or sister, uh, as though like, our worship is a higher priority than, than dealing with the anger and offense we've caused in them, or, or maybe just reasoning as fellow citizens in the kingdom, well, they should just forgive us. God's forgiven them. They should just forgive me, so, so I, I need to do my worship here. Don't, don't bother me with this. Or, I don't know, it's like we can develop this kind of wait-and-see attitude. Towards other people that we've caused offense and anger and ignoring the clear urgency Jesus gives his kingdom citizens here to, to, to settling our debts before we stand before a judge who has to force us to pay what we owe. Don't don't do that, says Jesus. As citizens of my kingdom, don't wait for some judge to have to force you to make rights, to settle a debt which you owe, you know that you owe. Don't do that. And I don't know who who it is that might be coming to mind this morning as we're talking about this making rights anger and offense that you've caused in someone else but uh, as you think about your own life this morning and where you're at this morning I wonder if you'd consider any debts of repentance or reconciliation that you know that you owe someone else this morning Ask the Holy Spirit to just bring that, that person or those people to mind. If, you, if you're really having a struggle to and you're kind of in doubt of whether or not that's the case, ask the Spirit to reveal to you. And then, as God reveals those things to us, or as we know that we have those debts to yet be paid, let's take Jesus seriously. Let's take Jesus seriously in what He's calling us to live out as citizens in His kingdom and have the same concern for helping bring about freedom from the destructive power of anger in others. As we do for experiencing that same freedom in our own lives. Let's have the same concern for both. Equally concerned and urgent about dealing with both of those things. That we could both experience that freedom. Because freedom, yeah. Freedom, I believe, is exactly why Jesus is telling us this this morning. It's, it's because he desires your freedom and my freedom. Freedom. That's why he's telling us this. I think that's actually Jesus' intent in each of these six examples that he expands on the deeper intention behind the law and the prophets that he came to fulfill. It's our freedom that he's desiring when he tells us this. This isn't about Jesus trying to make following God feel even harder and more impossible. Nor is it about Jesus trying to just invalidate your hurt, tell you to just get over it. No. It's because Jesus knows that the law of God is not only to restrain evil, but also to show us how it is God designed life to work best before sin's curse came in and broke and messed up everything. And now that he's fulfilled the law and the prophets on our behalf, Jesus reveals their <clears throat> fuller understanding of what it means to obey the law of God because he has freed us now to walk into that fullness, to walk into that fullness of life as God intended it for us and according to his design for us. Which Jesus. <laughs> it means Jesus called to obedience in this passage isn't to crush us under the weight of an even more impossible law, no, but that we might experience freedom from the destructive power of cherished sin in our hearts that restricts our freedom. that restricts us from being able to experience that, that freedom that he designed for us and so that we can work to see that freedom in others as well. what we know is that on the cross Jesus was truly crushed under the weight of the law, the full weight. Of the law, that, that, that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and anger against sin down to the very last drop, so that you and I would never have to even taste that cup of God's anger. So that we could be free to experience the fullness of life that our anger restricts us from knowing. That's what Jesus came to do in fulfilling the law and the prophets. And oh, do I long for that freedom? Man, do I long for it. Don't you? You long for that same freedom yourself? I've, I, I don't know how it is for you, but man, well beyond Dr. Banner's warning, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. What I also know for myself is that I don't like me when I'm angry. Never mind you won't like me. I don't like me when I'm angry. I know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a, a physically violent person. That's not usually how I externalize my anger. And yet, no, man, I know when I feed and cherish and just cling to my anger and my, my grudge in my heart, I can absolutely speak and act in just the meanest, most contemptuous ways that, that destroy relationships, that destroy people, that, that make people feel like raka, that make people feel like their value to me is you nothing, And I'm just tired of it. I'm just tired of waking up once again in the wreckage of my murderous words and seeing the hurt and destruction that they've caused in the lives of those that matter most to me. And actually really in the lives of anyone. I'm just tired of it. But that's why Jesus, expanding on this law, you shall not murder, expanding it, to its fullness, to see the fullness of what the law requires and what he's fulfilled for us. That's why this is so good, what Jesus is showing us today. Because it calls you and it calls me into the freedom that God intended for us to experience in this life that comes not just from physically not murdering people, but just don't get me wrong, that's good too, Like don't do that. Like we'll, We'll experience freedom from life in prison if we don't do that. but but freedom from the cherished anger in our hearts that brings about the same destructive results in our lives as well as in the lives of others. He came to bring us freedom from all of that. So My prayer for each one of us today is that we would know and walk in that freedom, that freedom that Jesus made available to us by coming and fulfilling the law and the prophets on our behalf. We would know and walk in that freedom today and in the days to come. That, that we could, that we could as, as the psalmist describes in Psalm 4, that we could be angry, yeah, be angry about the stuff that, that, that is, we should be angry about, but not sin. Not, not take it into ourselves and, and cling to it and hold it so that it destroys us and others. That we could be angry and not sin. Uh, as the Apostle Paul goes on to expand on that in Ephesians 4, to be angry and not sin, to, to not let the sun go down on our anger, to give the devil a, a foothold, that we could be free from all of those things. Because Jesus has given us, he's freed us to walk into that freedom. And as we saw the way that that our anger and and anger that we have and anger that we've caused in others restricts our worship. Jesus says, I don't don't want your worship while you still have something to make right. I pray that we would also know, as, as Peter calls us to in 1 Peter 3, that rather than cherishing or feeding anger any longer in our lives or in our hearts, that we would all learn day by day, to deal in an understanding way with one another. Not, not an angry way, but to deal with an understanding way with one another so that our prayers and that our worship would not be hindered. Oh, God, help us to do that. Amen. Amen.